Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. Hello, this is The Word Podcast. I'm David Hepworth. And I'm Mark Ellen. And we just thought we'd take advantage of this opportunity to explain a bit more about The Word in Your Ear evenings and The Word Podcast for people who don't quite know where they started. Where did they start, Mark? They started when we were back at uh, Word magazine, and uh, we've just kept them going ever since because they appear to be of great interest, which is wonderful. Um, we just tend to get in uh, authors of music books that we like and people who are good talkers and have interesting stuff to say and just explore whole areas about uh, different rock and roll times and uh, different musicians. And uh, we booked the, the back room of a, a pub in Islington, uh, on the knackered old sofas and the low lighting and, um, you know, the free cheese and onion rolls and uh, have an audience of, what, about 60, 70 people? Capacity? 60 or 70 people. If you'd like to be one of the, uh, a member of the audience, uh, just go, just Google Word in Your Ear London. Um, I can't remember the exact URL, but I'm sure you'll find it. And just add your name to the... Um, <laughs> the, the 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 mailing list and you'll you'll be told of a future event the next one's actually me isn't it mark it is it's you let's promote that dave has written yes. an absolutely fantastic stonking book called uncommon people which is just out and uh, we'll be talking about that next week but then there'll be further events you know throughout the summer and the rest of the year so word in your ear london is the place to go to if you if you want to add your name uh, to that list and and the word podcast if you want to make sure you get this all the time just go to wordpodcast.co.uk and you can subscribe to make sure that you you always receive this in your feed the last one of these we recorded we're delighted to say we were joined by an old friend of the podcast actually somebody we talked to ages ago in the old days of doing the podcast back at the office which is the great thomas dolby uh who's finally written about his extraordinary very varied and colorful career uh in in a new book called i haven't got it in front of me mark what's it called it's called the speed of sound breaking the barriers between music and technology and it's fantastic actually i mean the first half is about him being a electronic pop evangelist and the second half is his time in silicon valley being a kind of a dot-com pioneer it's a brilliant talker fascinating here it certainly is a brilliant talker so to get an idea of what a brilliant talker 
over to the Islington. Actually, you, you called yourself, uh, uh, throughout the book, Booker T. Boffin, doesn't he? <laughs> which I thought is brilliant, which is obviously a combination of being a kind of, um, you know, machine-driven pop evangelist and also a technology nerd. Yeah. So, would that be right? It was coined by Matt Langer, actually. Oh, right. Um, when I was about ooh, 19, I was sort of run out of town. This is um, probably you when yeah, you were about was, 19. That was probably about that period, yeah. actually, yeah. Um, I went to Paris uh, to sort of escape the, the debt collectors, and I, w- I was busking in the metro, and I got a call from a bloke uh, in, in London saying, Mick Jones is trying to get a hold of you, John. And um, uh, I thought, great, you know, I got the call from The Clash. And it turned out to be the other It's the Jones. other one. Yeah, the one in, in this band for We're going to come on to you later, because he paid you a lot more than, than, than the Clash Mick Jones might have done. Wait, that's probably true, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, so, I mean, I flew to New York, and I did an album with them, Foreigner 4, and um, Matt Langer was the producer, and um, he coined the term Booker T. Boffin. And, in fact, the next time I worked with him, which was with um, Def Leppard, I was a bit worried about getting stereotyped, you know, with these sort of dinosaur American bands, and I know they've... English and stuff, but you know what I mean. Um, and uh, so I, I put my credit on the album Pyromania as Booker T. Boffin, and I've still got triple platinum albums at home. <laughs> saying, <laughs> Do you think it's the case in the music business that the first impression people form of you sticks with you? You, you can't do anything about that. Sticks with me yeah. or with them? With them. That's their view of That's where they bought you. Is that true? Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if that's true. You know, I'm not sure if David Bowie would agree with that. Um, you know, I think you can you can manipulate the way the public perceives you if that's what you choose to do. But you, you know, your 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 name, which is 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 an adopted name, isn't it, to mm-hmm. to to deal with any confusion over Tom Robinson? Correct. That's, that's your actual. Name. Your real name is Thomas Robertson, isn't it? Correct. Yes. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I was, you know, in the days of TRB, I was Tom Robertson showing up to Tom Robinson gigs. And did uh, you do a deal with him where the one that was famous for first would, would be Tom Robertson? Yeah, yeah. So I went to see him at the Red Cow. You know, this was in sort of Grey Cortina days, and I went backstage afterwards and said, uh, you know. We have very similar names, and I think we should make a deal that whoever makes it first, the other one will change his name. And about two months later, he was in the charts with 2468 Motorway, and I thought, oh dear. (laughs) So what was your first entry into the music business then? Um, I think it was probably, you know, as a sound engineer, I mean, I was at this, interesting we're talking about those days, because, I mean, in, in the late 70s, I used to mix gigs for bands like The Members and The Gang of Four, and uh, um, the Mekons and so on in places like Dingwalls. And uh, that was my first, first you know, jo- actual job in the music industry was as, as a sound engineer. Um, but I was playing keyboards as well. And um, I played with various bands. And um, the first ones that actually, you know, had a paycheck attached was this band called Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club. And um, Bruce, as you probably know, was one of the original uh, Buggles along with... with uh, uh, Trevor and Jeff, and he co-wrote Video Killed the Radio Star, but then went solo and um, got his own deal, and I was a member of his band, and they had, you know, they actually had uh, retainers, which was very exciting. So what do you, tell us one piece of advice, one thing you've learned from mixing sound of live bands. What do they always complain about? What's the, what's the thing you always have to sort out? Well, they can't hear their monitors. All right, okay. Uh, yeah. 
I mean, it's less of an issue these days because they've got the, the in-ears, but that was always the issue. But, I mean, most of the bands I played with didn't really care whether they could hear their monitors or not. <laughs> you write about... I remember, I remember doing one gig with the members at Dingwalls, and it was, a, it was a, I think it was Nicky Tesco's birthday party. Oh, and yeah. his girlfriend had made this massive chocolate cake. And about two songs in... The, the audience had stormed the stage and the chocolate cake was just everywhere. And I was the... I'd borrowed the PA for the night and I was at the back watching all of this cake going into the grill. <laughs> the only person not enjoying the spectacle. <laughs> you, talk, you talk very uh, interesting about, about, about XTC and about Brian Eno, mm. uh, when you saw Brian Eno and Old Grey Whistle Test. So what, what were the key things about those two, uh, those two entities? You know, I think in the case of XTC, they had the punk energy, um, but they had intelligence and song craft and interesting lyrics. And, um, you know, as John was saying, this was sort of part of the generation that went on from punk, along with Talking Heads and people like that, that, that uh, had sort of, you know, they got the message about, you know, reinventing music and playing a lot faster and louder but they still had songs and that was that was really thrilling to me and I was a bit of a XTC groupie and I used to go and watch them and I'd be down the front sort of hoping that something terrible would happen to Barry Andrews their keyboard player um, and that you know Andy Partridge would go there anyone who play the does anybody else know how to play keyboards I go me me unfortunately when Barry left the band they replaced him with another guitarist which is very irritating. <laughs> what about Roxy music? What about Brian Eno? Was he a big influence? Um, absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know if it was in the era when you guys were involved with the Old Grey Whistle Test, but I remember one night watching Roxy music uh, on the Whistle Test, and um, at the back of the stage was this, this figure in leopard skin looking completely bored with... I don't think he even had a keyboard. I think it was just the knobs from a mini Moog, and he had his arms folded, and every now and then he was sort of demurely twiddle a knob and go back to looking bored again. And I thought, OK, if you can do that and become rich and famous, that is a great career path, you know. <laughs> The obsession with technology uh, uh, is documented from very early on. And in fact, there's one book where you found a synthesizer and a skip and, uh, and it started to, to make weird and interesting noises. Which yeah, it was, it was just a, a circuit board, yeah. uh, but I took it home and I, I soldered it into the rest of my system and um, got it making some noise, yeah. Because this, this is in the days when, to, to play this kind of stuff, you had to know how it worked, didn't you? It wasn't, wasn't user-friendly at all, Oh, was no, it? actually, it was a bad idea to know how it worked. Uh, definitely. Actually, the guy that invented this is an Australian engineer. knew nothing about music whatsoever. Um, I mean, his his previous invention had been something related to cable television, and uh, he invented this. And I remember hearing that Stevie Wonder had gone. It was this is the in Australia, the Fairline. Yeah. Stevie Wonder had come through Sydney and heard about this amazing instrument and asked whether it could be set up for him in his hotel suite so he could try it out. And the Fairline inventor said. Who's Stevie Wonder? <laughs> so explain, explain, explain briefly what the Fairlight was capable of doing. Um, what, what, made, what made it so different? Well, you would stick a microphone up to a sheep. That's right. And then you go, meh, 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 meh. You know, that's you could play a whole chord made up of sheep. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And then around that time, the Synclavier came in, is that right? Where you could, yeah, People Synclavier. started to put their entire live performance on a machine. And you could, yeah. in fact, mime the whole thing. Is that right? Yes, yes, that is right. I mean, the Synclavier was a sort of more expensive alternative to the Fairlight, yeah. But, I mean, there were initially, you know, by about 1984, there were 
probably less than a dozen of these in the UK. And um, my particular configuration uh, cost me £93,000. <laughs> and uh, in the same year, I bought a flat in Fulham for 24000 <laughs> So in today's money, God knows what that is. And there's now a Fairlight app, you know, which you can yeah. get. Which is free. I'm <laughs> 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 giving them away. <laughs> Did you hang on to any of these things? <laughs> did, you, um, did you keep them? And is there any value I in I wish it? I kept the flat in Fulham, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. <laughs> but seriously. No, no, but seriously. Well, people wax, you know, nostalgic about old synths, about old analogue synths and things like that. And that's great. And it's kind of, it's, you know, in, in parallel to the vinyl revival, people get very nostalgic about it. And they do have a certain charm to them, and they have a certain sound to them. But were they worth the hassle? No, not really. I mean, right. they were heavy, and they didn't stay in tune. And, you know, you'd leave something set up and go to bed, and you come in in the morning, and the cleaning lady has come in the studio, and she's jogged something, and it's all gone, you know. Now, these, the equivalent these days, of course, is, is malware on your, on your PC. Right, you know? yes. But, um, I suppose oh so. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. This, we had a push this. This is, the, this is the Bruce Willey and his camera club. And uh, with you on the far right. What sort of people were you up with? Who, were the, who was the competition? This was what, late 70s? When was this? Uh, early uh, yeah, this is, this is uh, 79-ish, I would 79. say. 79. Uh, who was the competition? Um, the very early days of... Spano Ballet and Duran yeah. Duran and that you know when you're in a record company office you would see bands like that milling around and so that was probably what was happening it was like the music industry had not really figured out how to sort of formularize punk rock particularly lucratively and so they were sort of moving on to the next thing which was new wave it was new romantic it was a lot more skinny ties exactly yeah and do you have some success with Bruce Willie? Well, um, I had success uh, in as much as I learnt a lot from Bruce, who is a brilliant songwriter and stylist and a lovely bloke and was a big influence on me, you know, on my own songwriting. And I think also it taught me, because we toured a lot, we toured in the States, um, uh, a little bit around the UK. Uh, and I was up there every night trying to perfect my, my stagecraft, really, you know, both as a, as a player and a programmer um, and sort of stage presence. So, so, yeah, I learned a lot from it. Right. Well, this is the... In fact, but then you then got a, signed up by Lena Lovitch as, as, a, as a songwriter. Which you, yeah, you sent so, her a cassette and... Uh, yes, yeah. yes. So, uh, with Bruce Woolley and the Camera Club, we, I toured in the US supporting the Lena Lovitch band. And I would watch her in amazement from the side of the stage. And I had a major sort of music crush on Lena. <clears throat> and um, at night, I would go, then after the gigs, I would go to my hotel room and write songs with a Porter Studio, which is this cassette-based recording device uh, made by Tascam, and a little Boss Dr. Rhythm drum I machine. I had one. Okay. Oh, yeah, you did four um, tracks. Yeah, and I wrote a song for Lena and made a cassette of it. And that the breakfast bar, um, I handed it to Les Chapel, who was her partner, and didn't hear anything at all. And I thought, oh, well, that's that. And then the tour ended, actually, because Lena got laryngitis. But six weeks after we all got back to the UK, I got a call saying, we really like your song. And would you come to a rehearsal room and try it out with us? So I got to the rehearsal room, and they had a keyboard player, but they set up a second keyboard rig. 
And I played on that, and we played the song. And um, she loved it, and it was called New Toy, and uh, Stiff Records loved it, and it came out and, and did fairly well. But you were also, you mentioned earlier that you got the call from, you thought it was Mick Jones from The Clash, but it wasn't, yeah. it was Mick Jones from Foreigner. Um, <laughs> so tell us your experience with working with Foreigner, and the, you had to go to New York, is that right? Yeah, so I went to New York, but they were already late with the deadline for their album. I mean, they're a huge band, and, so yeah. they, and they're on, I can't remember which you know, mega record company it was. They had a deadline to deliver the album, and that deadline was only a few weeks away, and they had to do vocals and mix. And if you know Mutt Langer, I mean, it takes him you know, a month to get a kick drum sound. So um, they were really up against it. But what they did is they put me in the back room at Electric Lady, uh, and I would work through the night with a relief engineer. And I had a laminated menu for keyboards that I was allowed to rent from um, uh, studio instrument rentals. Uh, you know, I was like 19 or 20. Dream. It was an absolute yeah, wet dream. It was fantastic. <laughs> so, um, so I would just experiment in there, you know, and um, it was the first time I'd really been in a top-class studio. And uh, one night, they had this ballad, right? It was, they weren't known for their slow songs, but they had this sort of Fender Rhodes piano ballad that Mick Jones had written. And um, I created an intro for it, Basically, because there was this technique that I always wanted to try where, you know what a mellotron is, right? You, you yeah. hold down a note and you get 15 seconds of flute playing middle C and, so, you know, strawberry fields forever, etc. Yeah. I thought, well, you could do that um, using a multi-track tape recorder by recording sustained single notes, you know, one on each track of the multi-track. And then you could, you could play the faders, you know. On, so I, I had an idea that I wanted to do this. And so I spent a whole night recording this intro and I, I stuck it on the front of Waiting for a Girl Like You. And um, the band came in in the morning, sort of bleary-eyed, to start with their vocal sessions. And I put it on, and it ended, and there was sort of this silence. And the, the bass player said, it's a bit like massage music, isn't it? <laughs> That's so no. spinal tap. Yeah, it really is. So, to which the drummer... It's what do you expect from Forrest? To which the drummer replied, cool, I could really use a massage, actually. <laughs> So, but it yeah. ended up on the hit record. It, amazingly, yeah, they kept it on the record. And years later, you know, I'd be, you know, in a taxi in Chicago, and the, there'd be the AOR radio station on, and there was my massage music. I was quite yeah. proud of that. Do you get credited there? Do you get part Absolutely. of publishing? Not publishing, no, no. But there, I mean, there's like a minute, some obscure fee that gets paid to musicians that that you know play on stuff, and so the, uh, trickle. Right. But you made, I mean, you were very well rewarded for all that, weren't you? And made your own album on your own terms. You didn't have to go yeah. to a record company. Which is a brilliant so, thing. So you could then shop that around and, and, and Exactly. And get the I right came deal. back from New York with a, literally a brown paper envelope full of dollars. And Actually, real cash money. Yeah, real cash money, yeah. And that, that basically paid for How me much? to make my first album. It was seven and a half grand seven in, and in dollars. Yeah. And that basically paid for me to make the golden age of wireless. Several flats in Fulham could be bought with that. <laughs> this is just uh, some of the records you made, and there's just a wonderful bit in the book where you talk about how if you had not had this obsession with your lyrics, uh, in your lyrics, with sci-fi, ham radio, and um, you know, and and uh, uh, cartoons and stuff like that, right. you know, uh, you you might have done better. You might have been more successful. 
Impossible to say. You said you should have written about teenage angst rather than, uh, you know. I could never do that, you know. Teenage angst, breakups, those kinds of things, you know, for some reason those just never really triggered lyrics in my mind, you know. I was just more into container ships and lost submarines. (laughs) So, broadly, did, did the record company let you do what you wanted? Broadly, yes. And I was reminded of this, um, you know, when I wrote my book, which is full of, like, dissing record companies, the way artists do when they write their memoirs. Um, And my then music business manager said, you know, they were actually very good to you. He said, I managed a lot of artists and you had it better than most. And they did. They let me design my own record covers and I wrote and directed several of my own videos. And... um, you know, probably, you know, right after I had a top five hit in the USA, um, they said, well, presumably you're going to give us a, a whole album's worth of, you know, She Blinded Me With Sciences. I said, well, actually, I've, I've got this idea about this sort of thing, Mulu the Rainforest, and I'm going to make the drum tracks out, out of cicadas in the jungle and trees falling over and have a pan pipe in it. And they sort of said, okay. You know, so... <laughs> Fair enough. Do you, do you ever think about that? I mean, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because, you, you know, you, you didn't get very well paid out of your record deals. Is that fair to say? You, you, don't, you don't feel that you got your just desserts. Is that right? Um, no. No, I, that, I'll correct that. Okay? Go on. I think I was one of the lucky ones. Because right. most artists, either they want to get signed or they want to get the hell out of their record deal. There's only two categories, usually. And I think that they did treat me quite well. I think they actually indulged me and allowed me to do this stuff because they didn't really dare argue with me for some reason. Um, And it could have been different. You know, I mean, I could have followed the formula. There was certainly a lot of pressure and I I would have got a lot of support from them if I tried to create a formula out of what I did and just, you know, spewed out a bunch more hit records like on a conveyor belt um, but I always had this rather perverse kind of you know different way of doing things and, and I, I'm always drawn to you know the next sort of challenge, the next horizon and, and things that I don't really understand fascinate me and I'm always the moment something sort of crosses the chasm and becomes mainstream it loses its interest for me, really. You know, I have a short attention span like that. So it's very annoying for the music industry. You write very well in the book, and, and quite sympathetically, actually, about how you, you know, when you have, on, on the edge of having a hit record or something's just gone in the charts, and they, they instantly want you in the territory where it's happening, you know, and everybody kind of claims ownership of it, don't they? You know? mm. I mean, what, what, what are the oddest situations you've found yourself in promoting records? Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not basically a very extroverted person. I'm not a natural performer. I'm not a song and dance man. You could put a spotlight on the stage and a piano and I'll go up there and thrill the crowd like an Elton John or something like that. Um, I, I sort of, I chip away at these creations that I have and I'm half expressing myself and I'm half showing off, hoping that one day a, a public will connect to it and millions of people will applaud me. You know, so, so my motivation is quite odd. And I'm, and I'm often quite as much motivated by the fear of screwing up as I am at, at sort of, you know, winning the big prize, the, the epic win. Right. Um, but 
I found myself in very odd situations because I'm not naturally very outgoing. Uh, and the media world and the whole star-fan relationship has a way of just igniting at certain points when something takes off. You know, these days we would say go viral, but in those days it was the breakthrough or whatever. Um, and when I found myself a centre of attention like that, it was very bizarre to me. It was like I was in a fishbowl. And it was quite surreal. It's quite sort of out of body, you know, to be on the red carpet, to be surrounded by popping light bulbs or whatever. And I almost became... The, a sort of uh, a, um, the sum of people's expectations of me. And I think this is something that happens to artists, you know, and, and interestingly, you know, when I met Michael Jackson, I felt that he was exactly that. He was like this sort of papier-mâché collage of everybody's expectations of him. And if there was a real Michael, it was buried very, very deep down. So tell us about your first encounter with Michael Jackson. Yeah, um, so it was actually a mile or so from here. I was in an edit suite in Soho uh, editing the video for She Blinded Me With Science and Michael was in the suite next door editing Billie Jean. And Billie Jean, if you think back, was the first single off Thriller. So Michael was already a superstar, right? But he wasn't what he became when Thriller really peaked. And... At the time of Billie Jean, he hadn't really hit his stride yet. I mean, the Billie Jean video has him in a sort of silky jacket on, on like a lit-up disco dance floor, you know. So it's before the days of zombies and all those sorts of things. <clears throat> but um, I met him at the water cooler, and he was very nice. And he'd actually heard my song because my song was getting played in sort of crossover radio stations and clubs in the USA. And he really liked the groove, and so we got into a conversation about uh, how I'd recorded it and uh, what my influences were and stuff like that. And he gave me his number, and I wrote it down in my filofax. Remember filofaxes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> about three months later, I, I got off a plane in Los Angeles in a torrential downpour with glandular fever. And uh, I was feeling absolutely rotten, and I did a live TV show, and this entourage of limos insisted on sort of taking me to Sunset Strip and all the rest of it. And I said, actually, I promised to see a friend tonight. And they said, well, we can drop you off somewhere. Why don't you give them a call? And they handed me a phone. And I said, right. And I pulled out my filofax and called the only LA number that I had, which was Michael's. And uh, he said, well, where are you? And I said, so he answered the phone. Amazingly, yeah, yeah. And so this fleet of limos took me to his place, and I was really embarrassed to show up with a fleet of limos. So I said, just drop me at the gate, I'll, I'll walk. You know, because it's about half a mile. And they presumably knew whose house this was. <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, they did, yeah. And it's about half a mile, you know, from the gate to his house. <laughs> and it was pouring with rain, so by the time I got there, I was just dripping. They probably thought this limey chancer is pretending he knows Michael Jackson, you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> No, I think, I think they believe so it. Did, was he sitting on a throne? Is, is that yes. right? Just describe it. It's wonderful. Describe the room. And there's a stuffed animal on one side yeah, yeah. of him. And he climbed up on this throne. Yeah, so he had, he had a throne that looked like it had been designed for Henry VIII. Yeah, yeah. And um, there were these art treasures around the house. But and they were gorgeous, but they were incongruous. You know, So you get a solid gold Venetian clock and next to that a Chinese ivory chess set. And, you know, a stuffed bear's head and a Darth Vader mask and, you know, just this amazing collection. And so Michael, you know, had to sort of climb up to get into this chair and he put me on a poof, you know, a little ottoman. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I thought we were alone in the house. And um, 
we had a really nice conversation about production techniques and about different singers that we liked and about LA versus the East Coast, you know, the changing seasons and the smog and all the rest of it. Us childhoods, you know, he, he had been on the road his whole childhood. My dad was traveling around as an archeologist. Uh, we had this great conversation and I assumed we were alone in the house. But about halfway through the evening, I suddenly noticed up in the banisters of the balcony, these little black faces sort of peering through the banisters. And I'd look up and they'd disappear. And I'd look again and then they were. And then a door opened and she blinded me with science, came blasting out at about 120 decibels. And I said to Michael, what's, uh, what's with the kids? He said, oh, Thursday nights they come over to play with their remote-controlled toys. So why don't you come down here, kids? And so there's like double staircases. And so these kids in their pajamas, probably 12 or 15 of them, pajamas and dressing gowns with remote-controlled Tonka toys and things. This isn't weird at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so so they, they come down, so they're playing with their remote-controlled cars, and Michael's going, you were telling me about the Fairlight. And every now and then he'd go, Billy, stop that. <laughs> Jimmy, what do we say about sharing our toys? And that was how the evening ended. <laughs> he was incredibly astute about, about technology and production and songwriting, but, but yeah. the emotional side of his life, did you get the impression that he, he was just still, uh, you know, adolescent, as it were? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think it was Peter Pan, basically. Yeah. And, and, you know, at the time, by the way, I did not pick, on, pick up on anything sinister or inappropriate about this relationship. You know, I didn't, it didn't have me crawling thinking I've got to get out of here. It just, it was a, a wonderland, really. But you, you, talk, you write in the book, I think, I think it's actually in the, in the introduction. Oh, yeah, well, it's, you're meant to be pitching songs. Well, you, you're, yeah. you're pitching a song to Michael mm. Jackson. <laughs> Under the most stressful circumstances. So... <clears throat> I did a gig at the Greek theatre in LA. This is a couple of years later, 18 months later. And Michael came backstage <clears throat> with a big entourage. And actually, his entourage was bigger than my entire band and crew put together. And so we had this sort of tent that was a green room. And there was like me and the band and two roadies. And about 30 of Michael's people came in. And we were all sort of like this. And Michael took me off to the side of the tent with the canvas. And <clears throat> he'd come from the recording session for... Um, the Brothers album, uh, which was called Victory. Victory. Yes. Thank you, thank you. And he was saying, you know, all my brothers want to get a song on the album because, like, one song on an album like that would be worth a fortune. So all the brothers are coming with these lousy demos, and he said, you know, we don't have enough songs. Have you got anything? And I went, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, he, yes. said, he said, well, have you got anything like Hyperactive? And I said, so happens, I've got one. That <laughs> <laughs> I will have in ten minutes. And he, and he said. Well, can I, he said <laughs> um, he said, can I hear it? And I said, well, you know what? I can, what I can do is I can send it to you from my personal computer. Ooh. And he said, you've got a personal computer. And I showed it to him. It was a Tandy uh, <laughs> RS80 or something. It was this little thing with a keyboard and it was green. And it had acoustic cups that you could plug a telephone receiver into and send files you know, over a phone line. So I had this wacky idea that that night in the tour bus, I would do a demo for him and that I'd send it to him the next day. So the next day, you know, we drove through the night and I made this demo in the back of the bus and we were on our way to Salt Lake City. So we're in the middle of the Nevada desert 
And I had to tell the bus the tour bus driver, who was from Texas, that he had to pull over. And uh, so we pulled over in a cloud of dust at a phone box, you know, on a, on a highway in the middle of the Nevada desert. And I'm there with my Tandy in my acoustic cups and a, and a, a corduroy trouser pocket full of quarters. And I'm, I'm pumping these quarters in like this, right? And there's a, a, an operator on the other end. And I got like $8 a quarters in or something. And then I'm trying to work these acoustic cups and send this file to... Um, record plant which is where he was and it wasn't working at all so they put Michael came on the phone he said why don't you just sing it to me like old style I'm like oh shit so I sort of stand there I sort of start and I'm like <laughs> and I'm singing this sort of you know semi falsetto voice of this song called interference to Michael and it's like you know a tumbleweed rolls past. <laughs> and I've got fire ants crawling up my trousers. And I finished it, and there's sort of a silence. You know, he said, "What else have you got?" Yeah, right. <laughs> was... And so he was auditioning for, for, for. I mean, the amount of money that could have been made is just staggering. It? It's yeah, a heartbreak. It was, it was. Yeah. Let's not dwell on it. No. No, it's my favourite story about pitching a song. That is, you know, have you got what something else? You know, yeah. that's the most withering thing you can say to anybody, isn't it? Because you know? I suppose they, he instantly knew, didn't he? You know, from what he heard, that this wasn't going to work for him. You know, is that fair to say? People like that, they've just got... No, it was, it was brilliant. Oh, right. No, he should have done it. It would have been the best thing on the album by a long shot. <laughs> yeah, probably would, actually. Yeah, I mean, I wrote Hyperactive for him, and if he'd done that, it would have been brilliant as well. Right, right, right. <laughs> so... Well, there, there he is. We, we've been talking about him. Oh, this is just... I mean, this has become traditional now in Warrior. We always have this picture of Bowie at, uh, at Live Aid, but, of course, you were part of the band. Now, explain how that happened. You, you, were, you were mates with Kevin Armstrong, the guitar player. You've got a series of pictures with different people photoshopped in next to Bowie at Live Aid. Pretty much, we've had so many people have either were at Live Aid or, or appeared with... Tessa Niles was on this uh, show yeah. very, very yeah, recently. Yeah. Um, well, uh, Kevin Armstrong, a guitarist, and Matthew Seligman, bass player from the Soft Boys, had played on Dancing in the Street uh, because Bowie had just done Absolute Beginners and they did the Dancing in the Street for uh, Band-Aid or whatever the predecessor yeah. was. Um, and Bowie got invited to do Live Aid and at the time he was shooting Labyrinth at um, Elstree or one of those studios uh, and his regular touring band were off in the USA, so they weren't available. So he decided that he would do this with a young English band. And so he asked Kevin and, and Matthew, and they said, well, you should talk to Thomas because he's a producer as well and he's got knows lots of, lots of musicians. So um, I got a call from Bowie, and this was maybe nine, ten days before Live Aid. And, I mean, looking back, he didn't really know the scale that it was going to be on. In fact, the first thing he said was, you know, well, he had a single out, Loving the Alien. And he said, I, I think I'm going to do it, you know, and plug my single. And I think as it got closer, he realised that it wasn't about, you know, plugging your current single at all. You know. But um, as a consequence, so we only had three rehearsals, because he was, during the day, he was shooting, you know, uh, Pinewood, I think it was. And he would come, we were at Nomis Studios in, in Olympia. He would show up for an hour, an hour and a half each evening for three evenings. And he had given the band a list of songs that he wanted us to work out. But he kept changing his mind 
about what songs to do. And it didn't really matter because we were all of the generation where we, you know, we grew up with those songs, we knew them inside out anyway. <clears throat> but he didn't settle on the eventual four that we did uh, until the, the evening before the show. And we'd never played them back to back. We'd played each of them in rehearsal. We'd never played them back to back. And by this stage, you had some idea you were going to play to 80,000 people at uh, you know, Wembley Stadium yes. and to oh. uh, uh, um, countless millions on television. By, by that point, everybody knew the scale it was going to be on. You know? And, and on, the, on the morning of the gig, it was a lovely bright morning, you could walk anywhere in London and you hear the preamble coming out of an upstairs window, out of a, a car, stopped at a traffic light... Um, it was just, everybody was, was feeling it, everybody was involved. And um, because of the traffic situation, they told me I, I was going to fly from Battersea Heliport uh, uh, with, with David, and we're going to fly to Wembley. Now, David, up to this point, I mean, so at this point, you know, I'd rehearsed with him a few days, had a few conversations with him. I'd been sort of expecting the thin white duke, you know. I, I was expecting a bratty, sort of cracked actor type. But he was anything but. He was an absolute gentleman. If you cast him in a movie, it would be Edward Fox, you know, that you would cast. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was an absolute sweetheart. And in rehearsal, he, he, I mean, he plays all the instruments, right? But he never once came to my keyboard or suggested a chord to Kevin. He would stand in the middle of the room just exuding and here were these sort of panting young musicians just wanting to please him, and he just pulled it out of us. I mean, it was fantastic. But I get to Battersea Heliport, where he's mobbed by fans, and he turns around, he looks at this helicopter, like with the, with the rotors going around, and a door open and a pilot standing there, and he turned into the cracked actor at that moment. And we, we get in the thing, and he's chain smoking. He had a Homburg. <laughs> pulled down over, over his face like this. So he's chain-smoking. The pilot keeps turning around asking him to extinguish his cigarette because it's bad. And he just keeps chain-smoking and he's going, how long does this trip take? Are there any pylons in the way? Any, any high buildings? <laughs> oh, how is the weather? Have you checked the weather? He was absolutely, you know... He's famously phobic about yeah, the tigers. Yeah, But it was the character, you know, from the back of the dream car in the cracked actor thing yeah. with the carton of milk. That's, that's who I was in the presence of. And... I remember banking over Wembley Stadium and looking down, and this was in the early days of the Jumbotron, and on the Jumbotron, I saw Freddie Mercury, like, crooning up at us. In the, and I thought, well, we're on next. <laughs> <laughs> but we landed, we landed in the back streets of Wembley and shifted to a motorcade, which went at sort of 90 miles an hour through these bollards and things, Screamed to a halt inside the car park at Wembley Stadium. There's about 100 paparazzi around. Oh, this is a brilliant bit. And he says, I, I love this, don't yeah, you? Yeah, he looks at me and says, I love this bit, Tom. And he opens the door and he goes, like, pop, 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 and the bulbs all going and all the rest of it. And we were taken straight to the side of the stage where I think it was Bob was on stage doing the intro. And he nudged me and he said, Let's start with TVC 15. <laughs> <laughs> which is only like a honky-tonk piano solo, which is not exactly my style. But right? you had rehearsed it. We had rehearsed it, yeah, yeah. But so it was, the whole set was starting with Thomas Dolby on, on the keyboard. 
<laughs> no lift to no tell pressure the tale. at all. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> fantastic. fantastic. It is fantastic. Fantastic. You, I wanted to ask you about this. This is this is a sensational section of the book. They, uh, you know, you've been fortunate enough to, you know, to been involved in all kinds of things, not all of which have worked, you know, and you very often learn most from the things that don't work, I suppose. Um, but you've, you know, you you worked, you worked on films and all kinds of things. Howard the Duck, you got engaged to, to work on... Uh, this is George Lucas's massive, allegedly comic project. When are we talking about here? Uh, I think it was 1985. Right, right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, are you telling me that Howard the Duck didn't work? Mate? <laughs> it, it, it's a cult classic. <laughs> and, and Howard, I'll have you know, is making a comeback. I just saw the new Guardians of the Universe the other day in 3D IMAX. And Howard has actually a speaking role in that, so he's going to get his own okay, feature again. Okay, fair enough. In the book, doesn't doesn't didn't you record that it lost fifty million dollars though? Was yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> that, just was, just to clarify, that was back in the days David's when fifty point. million dollars was a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But you, t you you talk about it was it was way behind, wasn't it, when they were when they were making it, and and, and you were and you were you were re-engaged for. What is it, 12 weeks or something like that? Yeah, they kept, I mean, they kept having problems, you know, like the, the duck was, had a prosthetic face controlled by um, puppeteers with animatronic um, devices and it would keep having software glitches and, you know, an eyebrow would go <laughs> and it would take them three days to repair it. So they, they kept rehiring me. Um, and I was training, there was a, an all-girl band in the film, and I was training them, because they were actresses, not really musicians. I was tr my job was to write their songs, but also to train them um, to look like real musicians. Right. See, but I just like that, the idea that they say, oh, another 12 weeks, not a problem at all, it all goes on the bill. That's, that was just the, that was the glory days of Hollywood, I suppose. Absolutely. Um, so, why have we got this picture here, Mark? I don't know. Well, we got that just because at this stage you kind of move over from the music industry and kind of into the, into the world of computer games. And, and it's just so... You seem a little bit um, kind of underawed by it in the end. There's brilliant descriptions of the money laundering process. In fact, do tell us about that. Oh, the, in the music it's just, it's just so fascinating. You talk about the top, of the top of the pops when they switch the tapes and all that kind of stuff. But the money laundering side of it was fascinating. Explain how that happened, which we can legally do. We can legally do, because yeah. most of the people are either dead or in jail. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, I mean, Howard the Duck was a great example. So I, I directed the video for Howard the Duck, and uh, at the production company offices in, in um, Los Angeles, uh, we were interviewing crew for the video, and a guy came in that was a carpenter, and we took his details, and we said, and what's your daily rate? And he said, $16,500. <laughs> he said, just check with fill in the blank at Warner Brothers or whatever. The, I can't remember if it was them. Yeah. Sorry, Warner Brothers. It was a big record company. Yeah. So we call up this guy and he said, yep, that's right. 16 and a half. That's his daily rate times two. And this was one of the ways that they would get cash out of the label to line somebody's back pocket and get, get music on the radio. 
So they had to, you know, there'd been big investigations, there'd been RICO cases, they had to come up with more and more sophisticated ways, you know, birthing somebody's speedboat or, or whatever. And the depressing thing about it for me was that, you know, when I had a, a hit in the charts in America, I thought, mistakenly, it was because of the merit of the song yeah. and the performance. But in fact, right? it was fruit and flowers. Now, I mean, yeah. the reality is that if you had the quality, in order to, comp to be competitive, they would put you up there on a plateau at which you could compete. So it wasn't like they were really buying, you know, I mean... It was not a level playing field by any means, but you couldn't really make shit stick, if you know what I mean. So you start, you start, tell us about how you start getting involved in the technology industry. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as I got disillusioned with the, with the music industry, um, in parallel to that, I was working more and more with technology companies. Because I was now using computers to record my music, and when the internet came along, my audience were largely using the same machines. You know, we all had Mac Pluses or, or you know, IBM 386s or whatever. The internet came along and we're all connected digitally. So I thought, well, it's only a matter of time before I could just hit a button and my song will go out to millions of people around the world. Now, I was off by a decade or two, but I basically had the right idea. So I would go, I was living in Los Angeles, but I would go to Silicon Valley to consult with these hardware and software companies. And I was showing them ways to use their products that they hadn't thought of. So I was coming up with new techniques and, you know, that, that weren't in the, in the user manuals. And if I was lucky, a few months later, they would send me a new version of the software that had my feature integrated. So I was completely hooked on this. And uh, I thought, right, I've got to get in there to the source and start designing this stuff myself. Um, so this is in the very early days of the internet and the early days of the explosion of investment in what became the dot-com boom, but this was really before that, so 94-ish. Um, at the time, if you had anything half resembling a business plan that you could scribble on the back of a paper napkin, you could find some meat packer from Texas that would write you a check, you know, um, to fund a company. And so I moved to Silicon Valley and I formed a, a tech company, uh, initially called Headspace, then called Beatnik, and we started to make music software for the internet. And uh, it was a wild time. It, it was, um, it, it was, there was, there was something a little bit punk about it, but the implications were on a massive scale because with what was coming to pass via the internet. This was not just a, a music or a fashion or a cultural thing. This was really a global lifestyle sea change for everybody. And you had that sense of it. And so it was a thrilling place to be. There's a tremendous bit where you talk about the idea that, that being a, a kind of geek and being the, the, the Booker T. Boffin kind of obsessed with technology was unfashionable. That becomes fashionable. And when it's unfashionable, you, you describe these people sitting in cubicles all day obsessed with these machines and they're only eating flat food. Now, what was flat food? It was stuff that could be slid under the door to you. Isn't that right? <laughs> if somebody's been, you know, if they haven't slept for two nights, then, yeah, then it's got to be, right. be cheese squares or, or you know, be a pizza or Chocolate yeah, or something. It's amazing. Sorry. Go no, go on. No, go on. It's amazing how, how fast this d developed, and, and very often in, not in ways that anybody foresaw. Mm. You, you've talked about it, uh, you, nobody thought about having musical ringtones, did they? Well, no. Um, 
So that sort of came about in a weird way. I mean, I have to say that, you know, when I started in Silicon Valley, it was very hard to get people to accept that there should be sound on computers, let alone music, let alone music as a driver, as a killer app for computers. Um, In fact, the investors that I would bring in would often say, you know, you might want to get these Macs off the table because if we see Macs, we think you're the guy's a hippie dreamer, you know, like Steve and Steve down the road. And and but actually, Apple were the only ones that took music and media seriously. And um, fast forward, you know, 20 years, who's the biggest company in the world, and what was their killer app? Um, so you know. There was definitely a place for music and sound on computers, but at the time, they thought it was all about crunching numbers in a spreadsheet. You know, they thought it was about business. Um, so the idea that the internet would be a, a, a pop culture force was was really Is not... No, nobody imagined you'd do anything creative on it, isn't that... They didn't imagine you'd do anything creative, and they couldn't see a way to monetize it. They couldn't see a way... They thought, OK, if you give away cool stuff on the web then, of course, people are going to sign up by the millions. But the moment you put a price tag on it, nobody's going to pay for it. People have this idea that Thomas Dolby, he wrote, he made a fortune out of a musical ringtone, you know, mm. is what they say. Mm. What's the truth of that? So is that, did you get that for Trivial Pursuits card? <laughs> <or something? laughs> a cab driver told me this on the way here tonight. So it, 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 what's the truth? Here's your opportunity to, you know... So, I mean, I had this company and we released software products and we had launch parties and press releases and satin tour jackets and mouse pads and berets and we had booths at Las Vegas at CES and so on. And we had millions and millions of people sign up to our website and we had profits of zero billion dollars per year. like any other dot com that you yeah, yeah. to mention, um, and I was sort of the front man for it. You know, I had enough residual infamy from my music days that I could get meetings. You know, with with investment bankers, with other companies, they were sort of happy to get me in their conference room and have a business meeting. And halfway through, they go, <laughs> "You know, I was at MIT when uh, your song was on the radio, and there was this, there was this chick I was dating, and my God." <laughs> Anyway, and so I could get it. I could get in for the meetings, you know. Um, but at the end of the day, it's very hard for me to get anything concrete done. Um, at the end of the 90s, we had one deal that actually made sense, uh, but it was a bit of a red herring because it wasn't really with a web, web company. It was with a phone company. And what had happened was that Nokia, who were already the top mobile phone company in the world, um, largely actually because, I mean, they had a great product, but part of it was that the guy in the street thought they were a Japanese company, but they're actually a Finnish company, and and they came from, you know, they're a hundred-year-old company that used to sell tractor tires and toilet paper and things like that. They were now the top mobile phone company in the world, and they'd seen Japanese phones coming out that had a Yamaha music chip in them and were playing musical ringtones. And they were playing catch-up. They were worried this would be an issue. And all theirs did was beep. So they had to look for a synthesizer that would work on their own puny processor without an additional chip, because they didn't want to pay Yamaha you know, dollars per unit for a chip. So they looked around, and there were other synth- software synthesizers at the time, other than ours. If you're a professional musician, you were using Propellerhead Reason or, or one of those things. But they were all 
state-of-the-art high-end, they used the maximum available processors. Whereas, because we made ours for the web, it was very, very compact, it was very efficient, it had a small footprint. So Nokia asked us if we would send engineers to Finland and see if we could get it to work on their phones. And we did, and it did, and we got four voices going, um, a reduced general MIDI set, and we could have them playing polyphonic ringtones. So they did a deal with us, and they licensed it, and they put it in their phones, um, initially as an experiment, and it took hold. And um, they asked me if I could, if with some of the musicians at the company, whether I could program the first set of, of ringtones uh, for the phone that it shipped with. And uh, among those ringtones was the now famous Nokia Waltz. So we programmed the, the polyphonic ringtone uh, that is, you know, is, is now so famous. Uh, that was one of the original set. Um, and the reason they picked it, by the way, was because it was by a dead guy. Yes, okay. <laughs> <A> dead guy. <laughs> There's some other wonderful names for your, for your ringtones. There's the, uh, one was called Great Lies of History, and the other was called Endangered Species Mating Calls. Yeah. Is that right? It's a wonderful idea. It's just, well, presumably just to amuse yourself. Okay, so, um, I, you know, we started churning out these pop ringtones and because that was the thing at the time, you know. So every Sunday night, the BBC chart would come out and, you know, Kylie had gone in. And so I would immediately set my musicians on to doing the polyphonic ringtone version of the new Kylie song. And by Monday or Tuesday, Orange and Verizon and T-Mobile and whoever else, O2, you know, all had them on their sites so you could buy this week's chart ringtones. Now, this, as you can imagine, was not terribly exciting to me. <laughs> I'd been known as the guy that, like, put the heart into electronic music and had these sort of lush symphonic arrangements. So I was not too thrilled with doing, you know, can't get you out of my head, you know, in, yeah. in four voices. So I did the sort of the high-end, the more esoteric ringtones, which was starting to use samples, which our, our technology was capable of doing, not just the bleeps. You could actually embed audio samples in the, in the ringtones. So I came up with these wacky categories, you know, like B-movie sci-fi sound effects and Great Lies of History, which was clips from um, American presidents, largely, speeches. Um, uh, and, um, yeah, Endangered Species ringtones. Uh, endangered Species mating calls. Mating there, calls. Isn't yeah. So are you, are you out of that business now? Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah, How, yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, but you presumably found it a very educational experience. Um, yes, it was educational because it was, again, it was one of those fields that I didn't really understand. In fact, nobody really understood it. It was very new. The guidelines hadn't been set. And those are the things I thrive on, you know. I'm very drawn to those situations because I get to be the smart ass that shows shows you how to do it. Uh, and also I get to express myself in a new medium. Um, so I've just have a succession of those really um, through my life. So what where would the next one be? Where's, where's the next area that you think would be worth expanding? Oh, from here? Oof. Yeah. That, that's really hard. I mean, I, I, um, so what happened after the whole ringtone thing was I, <clears throat> I decided to sort of back off for a while. I moved back to England from California to East Anglia, um, to this, this little tiny village on the coast, um, which I used to visit as a kid. And um, I, I just sort of blanked everything. I, I sort of semi-unplugged, and, and I, I built myself a studio um, in a lifeboat, in a 1930s ship's lifeboat in my garden. And I got local boat builders to come in and do all the joinery out of reclaimed 
timber. And it, I took out the diesel engine and put batteries in and a wind turbine and solar panels on the roof. And so long as there was wind or sun, I could power up the batteries and run this little studio. And I, I didn't particularly have a plan, you know. I started sort of writing songs and I kind of thought it was going to be an album. And then I sort of, I stopped myself and I said, wait, nobody's buying albums anymore. What am I doing here? I thought, well, what are they doing? Um, actually, they're, they're sort of on social networks and playing video games and so on. I thought, hmm, okay, that sounds kind of intriguing. Maybe my music doesn't have to be an album. Maybe it could be a video game or a, or a, or a DIY movie or something like that that I put on YouTube. So I was, uh, you know, I was a bit like Austin Powers waking up after, you know, 10 years in a cryogenic freeze. And all these <laughs> sort of shiny new toys that really appealed to me. So what do you occupy most of your time nowadays? Yeah, so for the last three years, I have been teaching at a university in Baltimore, Maryland, called Johns Hopkins University. Uh, they made me professor of the arts there uh, three years ago. And I'm going, I'm, so I come here for the summers. Uh, I work there eight months of the year. Uh, I've been helping them set up new programs. Uh, I help them set up a film centre um, and my next project there is a sort of new media music degree at their music conservatory, uh, which will have students doing music for um, video games and for virtual reality, um, hooking up EEGs to use brainwaves to control music, helping stroke victims recover. Um, so Johns Hopkins is primarily a medical institution, but it has this arts, full arts university, and I'm on that side, but there's lots of very intriguing possibilities for collaboration with the uh, with the medical campus. And still gigging occasionally? You know, um, so the other day I performed She Blinded Me With Science in front of the White House at the March for Science with uh, a bunch of celebrities filling in for Dr. Magnus Pike. Um, <laughs> Who were they? Uh, okay, they were J.J. Um, Abrams, Buzz Aldrin. Um, uh, Jonathan Batiste, who is this, this brilliant New Orleans um, pianist. Um, Carrie Byron, who is the redhead on Mythbusters. Um, and then some from history, Hillary Clinton, uh, JFK, uh, etc. So instead of, you know, I, so I play and run the video, and instead of Magnus Pike popping up there and going, science, you know, science. I'd, have, um, you know I'd have Hillary going, I believe in science. <laughs> well, look, you've had some fantastic experiences, and you, you know, you've you've taken advantage. It seems to me of every opportunity that's that's come your way in in, in a long and illustrious career, and long may it continue, in all kinds of surprising ways. But it's recorded in this fantastic book, The Speed of Sound, which uh, I'm sure Thomas will be happy to sign a copy for anybody who wants one. Uh, but would you please thank our guest, Thomas Dolby? <laughs> This podcast was brought to you by The Word. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.